You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part 11 of the series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We'll pause there after verse 48, well, at the end of Matthew chapter 5. Now, this is the the last of a a series of of sayings of Jesus where he's discussing this, uh, what has been said and, and then what he says. And since it's the last one, it's worth just commenting again on that phrasing. You have heard that it was said in all but one of these cases, Jesus direct, directly quotes from the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce uh, and an eye for an eye. And here you shall love your neighbour. Um, in the case of oaths, uh, Jesus doesn't quote directly, but he says something that holds together things that various Old Testament passages say. And so Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. That's a remarkable thing for any teacher to do, to quote the Old Testament, the scriptures. Jesus and, and fellow first century Jews wouldn't have called them the Old Testament. I mean, after all, they were simply the scriptures, the law and the prophets, as Jesus calls them. But to quote that and then to say, but I say, is radical. Jesus is claiming an authority as a teacher on a power with the Old Testament. Or perhaps we could say Jesus is presenting himself as the the one true interpreter of the Old Testament, the one who alone can, can tell us exactly what it was saying. And that's what Jesus is doing in these passages. He's he's correcting wrong ways of handling the Old Testament. He, he's dealing with how people have distorted its message and particularly how they have lessened the standard of the law. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. And at least part of what he meant was to restore it. That's what he does in these passages. Now, here uh, I've said that he quotes the Old Testament when he says you shall love your neighbour. That is certainly true. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 uh, says you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus quotes that again elsewhere as uh, he talks about the greatest commandment being loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. And then he says the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. So Jesus clearly recognised this is a commandment that encompasses so much of what the Old Testament teaches about our duty to other people. Now, interestingly here, he doesn't finish that sentence uh, as yourself, which is what the Leviticus says. He he ends at neighbour. Perhaps he's indicating that the teachers of his day had lessened the standard 
uh, not as yourself, but by whatever standard they defined. But in fact, what he does add is something that's not found anywhere in the Old Testament and hate your enemy. And this suggests that what some of the rabbis and teachers in Jesus' day were doing was to turn around this Old Testament statement and say, love your neighbour, but your enemy you should hate. And I think we see this idea elsewhere in Jesus' teaching in the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. There uh, the man asks him when Jesus says, love your neighbour, who is my neighbour? Jesus tells that story to show that our neighbour is a much broader category than some people might like to think. Jewish people in the first century might have excluded Samaritans from being their neighbour. Their neighbour was only their fellow Israelites uh, or their neighbour was uh, certain types of people, not sinners and tax collectors who the Pharisees would have distanced themselves from. Your neighbour is anybody who you interact with, anybody who you pass by. It is every person around us. But what these false or wrong teachers were saying is, well, yes, you must love your neighbour, but your neighbour is only this group of people. Uh, You must hate your enemy. But Jesus says, no, no, I say, love your enemies. This is not a new teaching. Jesus is not adding to the law. He's explaining that that's what the law about loving your neighbour was always about. There's nothing in the Old Testament that excludes your enemy from being your neighbour. No, your enemy is a neighbour too, just as the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, explains. And so just because somebody sets out to hurt you or to harm you, just because somebody does evil to you or has evil intent towards you, they know, do not cease to be your neighbour. Our neighbour neighbor is our fellow human being. And so we must love our enemies, Jesus says. We must pray for those who persecute us. Remember again earlier in the chapter, Jesus said that persecution will come to those who are of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, the last of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People who are persecuted for doing what is right. And more than that, verse 11 says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Not only persecution for doing what is right, but for being named as a follower of Jesus for declaring Jesus Christ as Lord. That persecution will come. How are we to respond to those who persecute us? Well, Jesus said we must pray for them. We pray not for uh, them to be destroyed, but for them to be saved, to be restored. That ought to be our desire for those who treat us as enemies, who mistreat us, who even persecute us, even for our faith in the Lord Jesus. That's challenging. It's not easy to pray for blessing for your enemy, for someone who has caused harm to you. And yet it's what Jesus commands. Why? Because in so doing, we are sons of our Father in heaven. Is this not what Jesus has done for us? What God through Jesus has done for us? Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said in verse 8, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And how do we make peace? We make peace by praying. First of all, praying for our enemies. That's vitally important because, of course, 
It is in prayer that we open our hearts to the work of God to change our attitude, to, to let us release the desire for vengeance towards that person, to surrender that to God and to say, uh, uh, Lord, vengeance is yours. Of course, I trust that you will judge this person someday. But in the meantime, help me to see how I can be like you in continuing to bless this person, because that's what your father in heaven does. He is the one who makes peace with us. He is the one who pours out his blessings, sun and rain on both evil and good or just and unjust. We're likely, at least in my part of the world, to receive one of those as a blessing from God's son. Uh, we tend to complain about having too much rain, although today, as I record this, it has been a beautiful sunny day. So even here in Ireland, we get some days without rain. Um, but of course, in the Middle East, where Jesus lived, the, the rain was a great blessing as well. Uh, because water was scarce at times. And, uh, and of course, we need water and we need sunlight for life. These are the basic essentials. And the amazing thing is that they stream down upon us. The sun rises, in at least as we perceive it, and, uh, and it beams down life-giving energy that allow the crops to grow, to provide food for us. And water, the stuff of life, a truly amazing substance. It's qualities I could go on about. I'll not do that. But they are, they are truly astounding uh, chemical qualities of water. And it pours down out of the sky. And sometimes we grumble instead of being thankful for it. But this water that, that, that is, is the basic ingredient for, for life is given to us freely by our Father. And he doesn't say, I'm going to put a little cloud over the good people and I'll withhold water from the bad ones. He doesn't say, I'll give sunlight to the good ones and not to the bad. No, no, just and unjust, good and evil, all receive bounteous blessings from God. Every good thing in this world is from him and it's available to everyone, even those who take it by force and deny it to others. Of course, there's a, a, a deeper challenge here, isn't there? Because whenever I think about the good guys and the bad guys, I, I tend to put myself in amongst the good guys. Oh, yeah, well, if there was anybody God would supply water to, it would be me, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I'm a decent fellow. Well, no, that, that's the wrong way of thinking. In one sense, when God gives rain and sun to the, to everyone, he, he, there isn't a, a, a good person on earth to receive it. There isn't a just person other than Jesus himself. I mean, if God had restricted his blessings of rain and sun just to just people without sin, then Jesus would have been walking around in an utterly dark world and dry world with just a cloud and a, and a sunbeam over his head. You know, God pours out these blessings on everyone and we ought to do the same. We ought to seek blessing both for those who we like and those we dislike, those who are kind to us and those who are cruel to us. What reward is there, Jesus says, verse 46, if you just love the people who love you? Even tax collectors do that. And you can see here that Jesus is being provocative. The tax collectors, of course, despised, looked down upon, lumped with sinners as being people who were not righteous by the teachers of Jesus' day. 
Jesus didn't treat them that way. So he's not saying even the tax collectors, they're the worst of the worst. He didn't treat them that way. He treated them as people. He he drew near to them. He ate with them. Uh, and of course, he called them to follow him and to repent of sin, just like he did with everybody else. But Jesus is saying, even those people that you think are the bad guys know how to love people who love them. I mean, that's that's natural instinct, isn't it? To return love to those who who love us, to be nice to those who are nice to us, to hang out with those who are like us. If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than other people? Everybody loves to be with people who are just like them. There's nothing special about that. The Gentiles even do that. Now, we are called to a higher standard, and I think there's a deep challenge here, and I'll say this, that when we look at the church, one of the great tragedies of the church in the 21st century is that so many churches, local congregations, are narrow in their demographic. It's been said for a long time in the USA that the most segregated hour between black and white people on is, is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, church going time. So many churches are either full of black people or full of white people or maybe full of Hispanic people or full of Asian people. Ethnic churches, culturally narrow churches, distinguished by skin colour in that case. Of course, here in in my part of the world, in Northern Ireland or the UK or Ireland, it's unlikely that people will be segregated on skin colour, although there are some ethnic churches. But churches tend to be more middle class than working class, and working class Christians tend to go to certain churches, and other churches are full of middle class people. And perhaps most tragically of all, some churches are narrow in their age profile. So you get new churches started that are designed to appeal to younger people and leave behind older people. And then older people are left behind in the more traditional churches. And you might argue, well, they should have changed and adapted to include the young people. Uh, I've no doubt there's some truth in that. But whatever the, the, the roots of that problem and whoever you blame, it is a tragedy when churches are not intergenerational. Because if we only love those people who are like us, if we only greet people who look like me and have the same interests as me and the same way of talking and like the same praise songs as I do, then that's a tragedy, isn't it? That is not the work of God. The work of God is to learn to love others, certainly our brothers and sisters, whatever differences they have from us, but even our enemy. Because by loving our enemy, we overcome evil. By loving our enemy, we show truly the grace of God. We are truly like our Father in heaven. We are learning to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's the very last verse of this chapter, verse 48. It's an echo of the Old Testament law. Again, as we come to the close of these reflections from Jesus on the Old Testament law, we're not... Um, we're not saying something new that wasn't there. Love your enemy is there in the Old Testament, or love your neighbour is there in the Old Testament with no restriction, uh, no enemy class to be hated. But, but actually the Old Testament law says repeatedly, be holy because I am holy. That's found in Leviticus chapters 19 to 20. Be holy because I am holy. It's quoted also in in First Peter chapter one verse sixteen, uh, and that's behind what Jesus is saying here. 
the call for Israel, the people of God, before Jesus was to be like God, to be holy because he is holy, to show his holiness and his goodness and his love to the nations. Israel did not do that faithfully. Jesus does. And so here is Jesus, who, as we've seen, as we've looked at Matthew, is following and fulfilling the pattern of the story of Israel. He was the one who uh, is saved out of Egypt, who passes through the water of baptism, just as they pass through the Red Sea, who is tested in the desert, but is faithful, unlike Israel, who grumble in the desert. And then who uh, now goes up the mountain, just as Moses went up the mountain to receive the law from God. Now Jesus goes up the mountain and says, I'm here to fulfill the law and to present his interpretation of it and his teaching, his application of God's standard. So Jesus is the fulfilment of that Old Testament standard, be holy as I am holy. Uh, and he says to his followers, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, as verse 20 put it. This, the, These episodes, these little uh, vignettes of Jesus teaching about anger being like murder and lust being like adultery and divorce being an exceptional thing rather than commonplace and oaths being unnecessary and retaliation or revenge not being a good thing uh, when it comes to interpersonal relationships and the need to love our enemy as well as those who are like us. He is restoring the standard of the law. He is taking our limited understanding of what is good and, and what is required of us. And he is exploding it. He's calling us to something much, much greater. And in doing that, he is challenging the hypocrisy that was uh, around him in, in the, the teachers of the law, those people who had reduced the standard of the law, who had come up with oaths that were not binding, who had added, instead of just love your neighbour, hate your enemy, and, and defined who was a neighbour and who was an enemy. Or who were justifying divorce in situations when it shouldn't have been justified or who were excusing lust and anger and never dealing with the issue of their heart. These religious hypocrites come under constant fire from Jesus. He declares woes to them later on in Matthew's Gospel, which I mentioned in one of the episodes here because it, he talks about oaths in that context too in chapter 23. And as we move into chapter 6, it is this religious hypocrisy that Jesus speaks about next, verses 1 to 4 of Matthew 6. Let's read those. Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. We'll end our reading for this episode at, at verse 4 of Matthew 6. Now, do you see this theme of religious hypocrisy? Do you see how Jesus is speaking of the hypocrites who, who love to be seen doing acts of, of piety, 
religious acts. It's hard to imagine that they might have blown a trumpet before them when they came to give to the needy. I, I don't know whether this is hyperbole from Jesus, exaggeration, uh, or whether this is literally what they did. Um, but it, it's quite sad, isn't it? This public demonstration of, of piety going into the synagogue and, and into the streets, into the public place, the place where, where the biggest number of people will see you. And there you do your acts of piety, your giving to the needy, first of all. Later on in the same chapter, and we'll deal with it in the next episode, Jesus talks about prayer and he says, go into your room and shut the door and pray. Don't do it uh, on the street corners. Verse 5, or also fasting, verse 16, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites who disfigure their faces. So if in chapter 5, Jesus has explained how these hypocrites lessen the standard of the law to justify themselves and judge others, uh, then here he's saying that they're also doing their religious acts in public, giving and, and praying and fasting. They want to be seen. Well, if you do that, then you receive the only reward you're going to get, as Jesus said in verse 16 about fasting. Truly, I say they've received their reward. If you do these things simply because you want to have a good reputation with others, well, that good reputation you might get, although I suspect that sooner or later that kind of mask will drop and people will see the real you. But you might get their praise but you'll get nothing else. God is not impressed with that kind of display. God knows the heart. He looks on the heart. So Jesus says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. Notice he's not saying don't do these things. He's not saying these are bad things to do. No, these are good things. They're things that Christians ought to do. Christians ought to be generous in giving. They ought to be people of prayer. Jesus teaches us how to pray. He, he gives us the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for that, which we'll look at in the next episode. But uh, the issue here is not about storing up treasure on earth, which again, verse 19 carries that theme on, although it talks about, about possessions as well, not simply about um, the praise of people. But don't live for the reward of popularity now. Don't be a people pleaser. Don't be someone who lives for praise, for fame, for reputation. That is the path to destruction. No, instead, uh, then do when you give. Don't sound a trumpet. But, but don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do these things discreetly. Give in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's read on. I hadn't planned to, but I think it makes sense into verses five and six of Matthew six. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I'll pause there again at verse six. And again, we'll deal with this, uh, these verses more fully when we think about prayer in the next episode and look at the Lord's Prayer. 
But you see the issue here that, that these hypocrites love to be seen again. Now, Jesus is not saying here that you can never pray out loud in front of other people. I mean, people do that in churches all the time, don't they? Leading prayer publicly from the front or in a prayer meeting, praying aloud. When we do that, we are leading others in prayer. And that's perfectly appropriate. But what Jesus is saying here is that you never pray in public to be seen. No, no, better to pray in private, in secret. And in fact, our public prayer should be simply the tip of the iceberg of how much we pray in private. In fact, as a Christian, we ought to be praying all of the time, oughtn't we? But but God is not impressed by public shows. People might be impressed by those things. God is not. And again, look at verses 16 to 18. Let's read those verses. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now again, uh, ending our reading there at verse 18, Jesus fasting, and by the way, is, is, is interesting because it was commonplace in Judaism in Jesus' day. It's not commanded in the Old Testament except for on the Day of Atonement, one day in the year that was a day of fasting. Um, but of course, as with many of those Old Testament requirements, the uh, teachers in Jesus' day had expanded that to multiple fast days. Uh, and then they had turned it into a public display, perhaps putting ashes on their face, going around looking sullen, letting people know how good and holy and upright they were. Virtue signalling, as we would call it today. Jesus says, don't do that. That's a private thing between you and God. God is not impressed with you showing off like that. Someone might ask, well, is Jesus saying that Christians should fast? Well, in one sense, he expects that people will fast, although that he's speaking to people who were in a culture where fasting was happening regularly. He's certainly not against it. I think it can be a very helpful and good thing for Christians to engage in, uh, not as a, as a way of impressing God or impressing people, but as a way of clearing space to focus more on God, to pray more, to control the desires of our bodies, to uh, creates, create a different rhythm and a different way of thinking about what matters most. Of course, fasting is from food, but uh, we may also choose to fast from other things like uh, smartphone usage or um, uh, anything else that tends to take a lot of time in our lives. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in fasting, but always see it as a way of making space for time with God, for relationship with him, um, uh, and for for reflection on our relationship with him and what he requires from us, not as a duty or, or something that earns God's favour or impresses other people. But notice the common theme in each of these places. The question is the reward that we are seeking. The question is whether we really trust that the, the audience that matters is our Father who sees in secret. Three times your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do we believe that? Do we believe that what matters is not this earth, whereas Jesus says, and we'll read it in a future episode, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, verse 19, but heaven. Do we, do we really believe that what matters is, is the eternal perspective, is what we are building into the kingdom of heaven? 
That's what we're seeking, isn't it? God's kingdom and his righteousness. Do we really believe that? Do we really trust that our father provides for us? Do we trust that he is a good father? That will come up again later in the Sermon on the Mount. A father who gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want. A father who knows before we even ask him, as Jesus will say in verse 8, what we need. A father who loves us. A father who wants what is good and best for us. A father who we can trust in and depend on. A father whose timing is good and perfect. The call of the Sermon on the Mount is a call to relationship with God. It's a call to relationship with him as king, but that the king is our father. And that statement, your father in heaven, is radical from Jesus. It was not commonplace for Jewish people to call God Father in that personal way, which as we see, we'll see in the prayer that Jesus teaches in the next episode, is what he calls us to do. Jesus talked to God as his Father. He invites us into that relationship too. The call is to trust him and therefore to learn from him how to love our enemies, to go back to the beginning of this episode, and how to bless those who curse us.